Okay. Hi, and welcome back to House Wine. I am so sorry, guys, I didn't post anything last week. It is, or was rather, last Monday, a holiday here, and I decided uh, to take, you know, a full sort of holiday weekend, uh, a, a for real weekend, which is something you know, that's uh, very rare and precious when you work in the hospitality industry um, and when you self-make a podcast every every week. Not that I'm complaining. I love making the podcast, but uh, it was uh, it was time. It was time just to take a Monday off. I didn't have any banked content. And I also wanted to take um, just a little minute in my life uh, just to catch up on making content. I wrote a ton of episodes this week in anticipation of restaurants opening up again in Toronto, uh, which will inevitably complicate and make my life, uh, you know, just a little busier and harder to uh, to get these shows out. So lots of written episodes that I can throw in the bank so that there will always be something on Mondays. With that, <laughs> I am your host. I'm Rachel. I write and uh, narrate this podcast, and I uh, record it in a little pillow fort in Toronto. I'm a certified sommelier, and I love helping uh, other people learn wine. And uh, that was my stomach growling. Uh, so without further ado, let's let's get into this episode, because I feel like this has been a long-awaited episode. I have thrown shade at Italian wine law for quite some time. I think I started throwing shade at Italian wine law in episode one when I did French wine law. So the time has come. Uh, This is a very special week, and this is an episode that I've alluded to doing or alluded to needing to do uh, for some time now. And of course, this is the official episode on Italian wine law. We're going to talk a lot about history today because this is mostly a history uh, episode. So if you're one of uh, the history buff listeners, then uh, buckle up because this episode is for you. There is no wine law quite like Italian wine law. You know, the passion, uh, the intrigue, the history, the scandals um, that happened when, you know, someone plants a grape when it's not legally designated to be planted there. You can really only imagine Uh, how crazy it gets. And nowhere, really, I mean, it's historic, wine is historical all over what we call the old world, which is Europe. But nowhere really has wine law that's so rooted in history and scandal, quite like Italy. Though wine vines, Vitis vinifera, uh, have been growing in the wild in Italy for the better part of about 4,000 years, uh, it was really the Greeks that started domesticating native grapevines and making wine in what is now Italy about 3,000 years ago. Uh, so in terms of winemaking cultures, Italy is very old, though they are beat in their antiquity by the Greeks and probably um, like some places in Georgia, maybe Slovakia. You know, there's some really old winemaking cultures out there. Actually, um, the Egyptians were making wine. Like, everyone's been making wine. But Italy is a very old winemaking culture. This is why, even today, there are so many wines and so many wineries that reference uh, the Etruscan culture. Wines that have an Etruscan coin on the label, for example, uh, just to pay homage to that part of their past. They often like to reference the fact that 
even though winemaking uh, and wine really got going with uh, the Romans and with Roman culture, that it had been going on uh, quite some time as part of their Greek colonial heritage because the Greeks did actually colonize most of Italy at one point. So it was really the Greeks that brought winemaking over and saw the potential that Italy had to be this sort of mecca of wine because grapes just grow really well in the Italian climate. So if you have been paying attention and listened to the show before, then you know that uh, nearly every episode uh, starts with, and then the Romans came and started growing wine here. And this is especially true when we talk about France, which at the time was Gaul, and also about Spain, but also some parts of Northern Africa and, and sort of around that Mediterranean basin were really heavily influenced by Roman winemaking in antiquity. The Romans, as we know, had a thirst that brought them or that they brought with them wherever they went. And they were pretty much responsible for starting up most of the wine trade in Europe that stuck around well after the Roman Empire was, you know, gone. The nice thing about the Romans is that they liked to keep records. Uh, and they kept good records, so much so that we know uh, that the favored wines of the Romans, the most prized wines, were coming from mod the modern provinces of Lazio and Campania. Lazio being the province around Rome, which makes sense, but oddly enough is not really noted for its quality wines today. Campania, however, is. And later on in the Roman Empire, there's also lots of note of the wines of Ancona, uh, which is the capital city of La Marque. And spoiler alert, our episode for next week, <laughs> there are even named grapes. Uh, and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this, but it doesn't really seem like the named grapes of the Roman era are any of the grapes that we talk about today. The Romans weren't like, oh, yes, this beautiful Nebbiolo or this Sangiovese. They really had their own grapes, and it seems like none of those grapes have really able or have really been able to be connected to modern wine grapes. When Rome fell, um, Italian wine kind of meandered into the Middle Ages. There isn't really a lot worth noting on what happened in Rome, or what happened in Italy, rather, until the 1300s, when, much like in France, we start seeing a lot of grapes and wines being written about and documented for the first time. It's also when we start to see some of the great winemaking houses being mentioned for the first time as well. Yes, that's right. There are some Italian winemaking families that can trace their history back to the 1300s. I am always very impressed when I hear about winemakers who are the 13th generation winemaker. You know, being from North America, I feel like I just don't have the same foundation of history and tradition. I barely know what my great-grandparents did for a living, uh, yet alone anyone before that. But winemaking families are very impressive. All to say, these winemaking families uh, became very prominent in Tuscany. By this time, most of northern and central Italy were solidly feudal. Uh, southern Italy was as well, but there's a little bit more trade and a bit of a smaller population. Southern Italy is a little bit more mountainous and rugged too, so not as ideal for farming. And the feudal system, like many feudal systems, was really based on agriculture and farming. Tuscany, or rather at the time, the cities of Florence and Siena, really were the ones that got things going wine-wise. And it's during this time that the Antonori and Frescobaldi families, both of whom were bankers and therefore kept extensive records, 
began getting into the wine trade and documenting what they were doing, the kinds of grapes that they were growing, and how they grew them. Unlike in France, where most of the documentation around this time was coming from monks, wine in Italy was really dominated by noble houses. And this is relevant today because if you go to a wine shop, you can buy a bottle of Antonori wine or a bottle of Frescobaldi wine. That's how long they've been in business for. And the Antonori family still owns their winery. Their last name is still Antonori. They're still they're still in business. And they've been in business since the 1300s. It's crazy. So this is a lot of ancient history just to sort of set things up. But I think it's also worth noting just before we skip ahead to the 19th century that Chianti was the first ever wine region to delimit its borders to control production and quality of their wines. That happened in the early 1700s, which is why today there is a lot of talk about who invented wine law and who invented wine legislation. And even though the modern appellation system in Europe and all around the world really is modeled after the French system, if you go to Italy, especially anywhere in Tuscany, you will often hear that it was actually invented by the Italians and that they were the ones who invented modern wine law which is true-ish because they were the first to ever, you know, delimit their borders and say, you know, this is the region of Chianti. You can only grow these Sangiovese-based wines here. But it's also kind of not really true because it really is actually modeled after the French AOC system. But don't bring that up around Tuscans. Also, before we skip ahead to the 19th century, I think it's important to note that, like I said, many parts of Italy were not great for farming, uh, but people still lived there and there was still a need for good land to grow food and wine on. So Italy began a really unique way of growing wine that you can still find today. And this was a unique way of trellising grapevines so that they grew above other crops. This method is called the pergola, P-E-R-G-O-L-A method of vine training, so that you can plant vegetables, wheat, whatever you need underneath the grapevines to maximize your land. And even though this is a very ancient way of growing grapes uh, that was born out of necessity in those sort of more mountainous regions, it's still a training method that's used today. So if you go to, you know, Umbria or Puglia, you'll see these grapevines um, that are sort of very vertical, like grown very vertical, and then have this sort of like hanging trellis over them, and you can like walk underneath them, and then they'll have like potatoes growing underneath. It's very utilitarian. Now, while the French and South Africans and a whole host of other wine-growing regions like Hungary and the Mosul in Germany were experiencing a boom in the 17th and 18th centuries, Italian wine was not. And there are a few reasons for this, though it seems that one of, you know, Europe's great wine regions would have been at the top of their game at the same time when we were seeing such great success and great trade coming out of France. Italy though right in the center of the Mediterranean, is actually quite isolated. You have the Tyrrhenian Sea to the west, you have the Ionian Sea that flanks Sicily to the south, and the Adriatic Sea that separates Italy from Croatia to the east. The whole north of Italy is bordered by the Alps, and down the spine of the boot, you have a mountain range called the Apennine Mountains, which means that it's very difficult to travel from either side of the coast. It's pretty laborious and difficult if you don't have a car or modern roads. Also, uh, unlike France and Germany, there aren't many rivers in Italy. There's some in the north, to be sure, but really once you get down to the central and southern parts of Italy, 
There's not a ton of waterways, which meant that in the ancient world and during the Middle Ages, and also into the, you know, 16th, 17th, 1800s, it was very difficult to transport wine. So most wine production was made locally and then consumed locally, which is also why today we see so many varieties of wine grape in Italy. And as a result, Italy has the most native wine varieties of anywhere in the world. Because for most of their winemaking history, everyone was kind of just doing their own thing. And unlike France, there wasn't, you know, some guy coming down the river once a week telling you how great Pinot Noir is or how great Malbec is. And, you know, you weren't sitting there scratching your head being like, oh, maybe I should grow Pinot Noir too. So I have mentioned it uh, before in different episodes, I think in the Lambrusco episode or maybe in the Prosecco episode, but... Italy wasn't even a unified country until pretty recently. In the 19th century, the movement to unify Italy was called the Risorgimento. It was this sort of seedling of a nationalist movement to make all the territories uh, on the Italian peninsula one single nation. And I think I mentioned this before, but it did not happen overnight. Rather, it took about 30 years for the unification of Italy to happen. And uh, that's a lot of, you know, passionate Italians arguing over very sort of trivial nuances, like, where's the border of Tuscany? And do we include Sicily? I mean, not trivial to them, obviously, but did it merit 30 years worth of discussion? I don't know. It's hard to say. I wasn't there. But it was fortunate that right around the time of the unification, is also when we started to see trade pick up. Not because no one wanted to trade with Italy, but because there was more of a push uh, coming from new technologies and infrastructure that they were sort of able to execute at the time, like modern roads and trains and transport. So this is when the Italian wine trade kind of started uh, dipping their toe into the European wine scene, even though they had technically kind of been there all along. The unification of Italy happened in the 1860s, but it wasn't until the early 20th century that the boundaries of Europe were really being drawn out, and Italy took shape and looks more like what it does now today. The early unification didn't include many of the provinces of the north um, that were at the time part of Austria and Hungary. Are you bored of history yet? (laughs) Well, (laughs) too bad. (laughs) I mentioned at the top of the episode uh, that this is almost an entirely history episode. So to sum all of that up, the Italy that we know today is very different from the Italy that once was. But the fact of the matter is, is that all over ancient and modern Italy, they have always been making wine. The time where history takes sort of a backseat to wine law is really in 1963. I mean, wine law is history, but now we're talking meaty wine law. This is the year when Italy started its appellation system which may or may not have been modeled after the French system, though no one will ever tell you that. This is when they started delimiting regions into a system that was, like the French, a three-tiered system. Though in 1963, it was just a two-tiered system. Wines were delimited in the original classification of 1963, could only fit under one category, and that was DOC, which stands for Demenez... Denom, hold, bear with me, denominazione origine controllata. Very much like, and you didn't hear it here, appellation d'origine controllée. Just saying. The highest tier of Italian wine law was also introduced in 1963. 
So if we're imagining a pyramid, which is what we like to do when we're studying wine law and making a visual of wine law in our minds, then DOC is the middle of that pyramid. And the category above it, the top of the pyramid, which again, like I said, was introduced in 1963, but later, is in its short form referred to as DOCG. And that is Denominazione d'Origine Controllata Garantita. So better than DOC. So even though that top tier of the classification system came into existence uh, right after DOC, which is the middle, in 1963, no regions were upgraded or designated to this status, to DOCG status, until 1980. And for those of you who absolutely must know, the first appellation that became DOCG in 1980, or appellations that became DOCG in 1980, were Brunello de Montalcino, and its little baby brother appellation, Vino Nobile di Montepulciano, who had previously both been DOC but got upgraded. The real way that the DOC and DOCG differ from the French system is that within them, there are usually more specific rules and regulations for what can and can't happen to a wine. And there's more quality levels. A little bit like Spain, but uh, that's kind of a different show. So... Within a DOCG or a DOC, you can have just regular wines. They're often referred to as normale, but you can also have reserva level wines that usually have a little bit more aging, both in bottle and in oak. Some appellations take it even a little further, uh, like for instance, Chianti, which has a level above reserva called Gran Selezione, where the wines age even longer. And these aging requirements are set out by law through the DOC or through the DOCG regulations and even pertain to things like how long you have to dry the grapes for, say, a passamento style wines like Amarone. Now, the base of the pyramid, which you think would be the simplest part and doesn't really have as many rules, is called Vino de Tavola. And it's true, it doesn't have as many rules and it technically translates to table wines. But this category did get a little messy because uh, there were a lot of producers who were wanting to make wine, quality wine, outside the confines of their DOC or DOCG that they were in. And the best example of this is, again, in Tuscany, where producers in Chianti basically started making wines that weren't Chianti under the specific rules of Chianti. These were wines that eventually went on to be called Super Tuscans and were usually made with what is referred to as, quote-unquote, international grapes. And those are grapes that basically just don't originate in Italy. So the grapes of choice for this were Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, to name a few. There's others. All of this really hit a climax in 1992, when Italy tried to reform the Vino de Tavola category and make it somehow more official, because the wines that were being made in Vino de Tavola weren't just your table wines anymore, They were creating such a stir and going for such high prices internationally that they made a law called Goria's Law, which made the Vino de Tavola an IGT, an Indicazione de Geografica Tipica, which was legally designated but had slightly more relaxed rules. But even then, the area of Tuscany, where they were making all these super Tuscans, did eventually become a DOC in its own right. And it's called Bulgari DOC, like the luxury brand. 
because the wines there are expensive. I don't think they're related. Now, all throughout this time, 1963, uh, up until the 2000s, the seat of power for getting your Appalachian upgraded to a DOC or upgraded from a DOC to a DOCG was in Rome, with the legislative powers and heads of state for all of Italy. But when the EU took over in 2008, they took over wine legislation and wine law, and not just for Italy, but for the whole of the EU. So in the transition, there was a flood of applications for DOCG and DOC before the Italian wine legislation moved from Rome to Brussels, which is the seat of the EU. Now, this is where it gets a little scandalous. There were a lot of upgrades, probably more than there should have been. Wine regions that had been relatively obscure for a long time were suddenly given out of nowhere coveted DOCG titles and put on the same pedestal as, you know, these powerhouse regions or these super historical regions like Barolo, Chianti Classico, or Amarone della Valpolicella. Nizza is a DOCG and it's in Piedmonte and it gets thrown uh, quite a bit of shade. But Nizza, a wine region that many of us not have not heard of, uh, let alone ever had a bottle of, uh, was the last in the line of many DOCs that saw themselves strangely upgraded to DOCG. And it just kind of smelt like corruption and scandal. Everyone in the wine world was kind of like, what is going on in Italy? And this all went down in 2011. And Italian wine law, which seems to have a lot of strange and unnecessarily and convoluted rules and designations, and names really got even more convoluted and had more designations and more names right before the EU took over. So all to say, there are a lot of DOCs, like a lot. I'm not even going to tell you how many there are because I'm sure I could look it up, but it's there's just tons of DOCs. But between 2009 and 2011, there went from being 50 DOCGs, so 50 in the span of 30 years, got upgraded. And in just two years, that number spiked to 73, which means that they tripled in just under two years. Consortiums from Appalachians were working very hard to make sure that they got that coveted DOCG designation. That actually doesn't really mean that much if you're a consumer who doesn't know what DOCG means. But alas, I digress. For the last 10 years, there has been no movement in the DOCG but the wheel seems to have started to turn again. And now, after 10 years of sort of placid quietness in Italian wine, there was a new DOCG upgraded just last year at the very, very end of 2020. I think I actually mentioned it in, I want to say, the top of the South Africa episode was when... Anyways, it doesn't matter. I did mention it at the top of an episode when it happened, that's all. But it did get upgraded, and it is called Terre Alfiere. And it's a DOCG now. It used to be a DOC. Now it's a DOCG. And it's in Piedmonte. So what is the future of Italian wine law? Now that we know that it's so marred in scandal and that most of the grapes they're growing are things that we've never, ever heard of. Well, the thing is, is that even though the labels may be hard to understand and there may be some DOCGs that can now charge more money for wines just because they have a DOCG designation, though perhaps not the quality of some of their famous counterparts. The thing is, is that Italians have been making wine for a very, very long time, and the wines are good. 
there is so much variation in Italy that it is ripe for experimentation, which is why wine people and sommeliers really, really love Italy. So if you are interested in unique wines and you want to explore and you want to know more, then Italy is a good place to start. I encourage you this week when you go to the liquor store or you go to the wine shop, uh, just look at the top of a bottle of Italian wine. Look around the foil. See if you see that little piece of paper that you've probably seen before, but you may have not noticed and see what it says. Does it say DOC? Does it say DOCG? Does it say nothing at all? It might say nothing at all, which means it's an IGT, but that's okay. There are amazing IGT wines. There are amazing DOC wines, and there are some really amazing DOCG wines. There are also some kind of meh in every category too, but it takes experimentation to know what you like. So go out, experiment, and if you learn something from this episode, before you go, scroll down, leave a review, leave a rating, click five stars, because this podcast is 100% independent. It is a labor of love. Every episode is written, narrated, and produced by me, Rachel. You can find me on social media at House Wine Podcast on Instagram. I personally am also on Instagram as Rachel Picard. That's Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. If you spotted a mistake or a correction or you desperately need to get in touch with me, you can also email this podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you all have a lovely week and I hope you get to drink some Italian wine. Next week, we're doing La Marche and uh, I'm very excited for it. Have a great week, guys.